this is an exciting day because it is actually where I feel like two of the worlds that I've been playing in recently are colliding. I have Alex Malowski with me and he is going to be talking to us today about geospatial sensor networks and partitioning data. And really what I thought was the most interesting when we talked is this idea of how Kubernetes has changed the way that we think about what some might call data ops or data DevOps. And we're gonna explore all of these topics and more, but before we do that, I'm sure you all see on your screen, hopefully a picture of Alex and a bit of a bio on him. If you would like to know more, he's been, he's working at Redis Labs right now. He's doing some ML stuff. He's also had some past work at NASA, which is always a huge, uh, giving you, it just gives you a lot of credibility, Alex. I really think that's great. Now let's, uh, let's jump into it. Alex, can I start off by asking you how you got into tech and then how later on you started going into data science, ML and all that? Sure. Um, boy, <laughs> how I got into tech, you know, I, uh, I'm one of those people that started programming when, you know, when I was a little kid. And so that was, and that was a long time ago. That was on an Apple IIe. Oh, nice. Uh, so I just started doing that when I was like 11, 12. And uh, so I, you know, and that time was a fascinating time to be working on computers because it was all new. At least, you know. So, um, and I've just stayed in it ever since. You know, it's funny because I get my degrees are in, mostly in math and my, my Work experience has all been in, in computer science, so, and I've you know found uh, navigated a sort of a between the two. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> uh, a lot. super useful, so. especially doing doing data science and machine learning stuff that it seems like you've been diving into. Now, yeah. I know you have some slides prepared for us, but before you get into all of that, I just wanted to ask: to can we break it down? And maybe can you give us your best shot at explaining what is this data DevOps, or as some um, people call it? I think it, the data challenge ops. here is, um, uh, you know, the there's the aspect of you know you maybe have a system that's you know pumping real time data and you have a database and that's great, but you know the, a lot of times people have uh, data sets you know that are sort of waiting in the wings and uh, and the challenge whether you're an enterprise or a researcher is you know, how do I get my, the data set that I'm interested, the partition of it that I need, you know, into some usable form, uh, you know, some database or some other, you know, some other format that I can then process it, run my model on, you know, uh, do my analysis. And that, that aspect of, of manipulating data is, you know, there's, you know, this is said all over the place in the industry too, you know, this is where people spend all their time. Um, so, mm. uh, and that's been definitely been my experience over the years and and most recently with the, the scientific data sets it's like the manipulation of the data just to get the last piece you know is is the challenge um, and we want to make that simpler and easier and more reliable so that we can do more ad hoc analysis and get to the real work that we're supposed to be doing um, you know whatever and uh, and that's the challenge and and I think that uh, this is where I believe that Kubernetes has a lot to offer. Um, because we we have a language to describe the you know the API is a language to describe the operations we would like to carry out 
and then we have an infrastructure that can 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 drive towards that successful completion. Mm. And so, a lot of times you hear in machine learning this idea of the data scientist spending the bulk of their time doing the cleaning of data, the what you were saying, moving it around, or just trying to make sense of it. And you're you're thinking that Kubernetes has this potential in in ways that I, I imagine you're going to get into in a minute uh, and how they're going to do that. But along those lines of the, the full potential of Kubernetes, when you look at it in, from the bottom of the stack to the top, like what are some things that, that for you get you excited? Um, well, I think that, you know, for me, the, the recent... Um, focus on operators. I mean, I, I think the idea of a data operator is really interesting. And that, you know, because mm -hmm. there's all this heavy lifting that, you know, in, in, in people who are sort of well-staffed, you know, they have these data engineers that can go and take the conceptual idea, you know, from uh, maybe a machine learning scientist and say, okay, now we need to, to scale this. Here's all the things we need to do to our data. And, and they know how to turn that into reliable code. So the idea that you could say what you want at a higher level and an operator could go off and do those things for you uh, in a reliable fashion uh, is, uh, I think, very, a very exciting idea. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that, you know, you do spend a lot of, you know, the data engineering is a lot of the same kinds of things over and over again. Mm. And uh, people who are successful at that, you know, they build their own frameworks so they have their own libraries and they have their own policies and, and so maybe we can encapsulate that somehow as an operator. Awesome. Yeah, such good points. So I'll let you pull up the slides. And while you're getting all that ready and sharing your screen, I wanted to just take a moment and mention that these are excellent things that we've been talking about in the community. And some of those may be where a SRE role stops and a data engineer role begins or what the benefits of operators are, what the downfalls could be. All of that is really great when you start digging into it. And I think that, like you said, operators have such interesting um, use cases and ways to use them. All right. Are we ready? Let's hit it. All right. So uh, here we are, geospatial uh, sensor networks and partitioning data. And uh, just quickly, uh, my uh, outline here is um, you know, just a bit about me. We've already talked about that a little bit, but uh, I want to just, uh, that's one slide. Uh, and then we're going to talk a bit about partition sensor networks and what that means. Uh, and then how basically that work has evolved to Kubernetes, you know, where I came from, you know, with that, that kind of work, and then where, where we are now. And then I have a demo. So with our quality, awesome, timely here for California. Um, yeah, very, very top of mind. And uh, so for about me, you know, I've been doing various things in technology and the web and RDFA and semantic you know, since around 1998. I've uh, been involved in heavily involved in uh, W3C and I did my PhD later in 2014, and that was basically I'm looking at the intersection of data, like scientific data on the web. How do we get data on the web so it's processable? And um, then 
you know, I, I've been in and out of academia and industry in various ways in startups, large and small, and taught at Berkeley and uh, San Francisco State and a variety of topics. And so I've sort of been able to look at this from different perspectives. And more recently, you know, my journey on Kubernetes, you know, I, I was at uh, Orange and uh, we were, in, you know, about 2017 and sort of the, I think Kubernetes sort of took the world by storm at that point. And we were looking at how do we use this technology uh, to sort of support the state of DevOps, you know, when we have on-premise needs and hybrid cloud and, you know, how do we move information around and for machine learning purposes. And we also had a question, you know, sort of about data governance versus governance of data. Mm. And there's a distinction there, which is, you know, subtle, but important, which is, you know, there's the legal aspects of, which is data governance, you know, what laws do I have to comply with versus the policies that I want to apply to my data. And I was very particularly interested in how infrastructure can help, um, you know, support and enforce and make um, policies of, for data operational. Such a good point. Um, so that, that was some of the work I've been doing. And, uh, but to go back a little bit, um, you know, we're talking about sensor networks here. And my original, I was looking at data and uh, different uh, kinds of data sets that are, you know, scientific data that people are producing. And I was looking for something that I thought was maybe not controversial, um, you know, <laughs> or something that was not, uh, um, not overly complicated or would have, you know, privacy concerns like, you know, or mm -hmm. in industry privacy concerns, you know, so like, like biological data is really interesting, but, you know, a lot of people do I keep that private. So weather turns out to be really interesting because there is this citizens weather observation from CWAP and it is basically a globally collected, uh, uh, connected network of weather stations. So people, run these in there, they have them in their yards, their businesses have them, local government agencies have them. And it's citizen collect, so it's citizen science and citizen collected data. Um, people, there were weather geeks out there. I became one of them. I put one of these up in my, in my yard because uh, I was interested in how it works. And, uh, and there's this feed that you can get of an aggregated feed of, across the whole world, you know, of all of these uh, connected weather stations. And it uses this um, APRS protocol, which is based, it comes out of ham radio basically so it's a it was originally developed you know for transmitting data over ham radio and uh so it's, it's got this kind of funky format and uh, uh with station codes and and so forth but you know it's it's useful and about 100 million weather reports come in, in per month and that's you know per that's 2014 so maybe there's more now uh and there's different about 800 different organizations that use this including the noa um here in the us uh so you know, our weather reports include some, you know, citizen collected data and they clean this data. You know, they go in and they see, is this a good weather report and can we use this? Because there's more citizen weather, you know, uh, stations than there are, um, than there are, you know, official government ones. Mm -hmm. So, so it was a very interesting feed and it's geospatial. There's latitudes and longitudes. You kind of see it in that bottom piece is a snippet of the kind of data you receive. They code this whole thing. It's all coded in various ways and, and, and uh, sometimes not, not correct. Um, so that's, that's the fun of collecting the data. Um, and so the challenge here is to take this citizen CWAP data and create a mesonet, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a system for distributing this data, uh, the clean version of it. And so part of my dissertation research was basically saying, you know, how do we go about using this as an exemplar? 
And the idea was to, you know, we, we take this, this weather data feed and we're going to receive it and we're going to, you know, sort of chunk, chunk it up into pieces, you know, because we're going to have to process it over time. And we're going to partition it by the facets it has. So we have time and we have geospatial. And so times, you know, we can think about that in, in sort of minute periods, but uh, quadrangles is a standard map technique. You know, they are basically rectangular-like areas, you know, mapped onto a surface of a sphere, so they turn into triangles at the poles. And we want to turn this into something that's processable by web-enabled agents. So this was the idea. And so the challenge is to take this feed of 100 million web uh, reports per month and turn it into these chunks of data or data, data stored somewhere that can be turned into chunks of quadrangles and then encoded in, into a web-enabled uh, uh, format. And I chose here for a semantic web-enabled agent. So I was using coding this into basically web pages with RDFA data in it. Uh, and then that, that was the experiment to see, like, can we do something useful with that? Wow. So that's the challenge. Um, and you know, then again, this is circa 2014. So the whole infrastructure is running on VMs and you know, databases and my, my managing all these things in, in, in various manual ways. Um, and uh, you know, the part of the result of my work was this idea of saying, hey, you know, there's a methodology here. We partition, annotate, and name. So we partition our data by regular facets, you know, so time, geospatial location, uh, and this enables algorithmic navigation. We have links between our partitions. We have annotations and names. We have ways, you know, we have the partitions are reasonable sized uh, so that we can, we can retrieve them. And that means that we can create algorithms that can use, that can navigate our data based on the metadata that they have. They retrieve a partition. They have essential metadata that says, what is this partition? What's the data that you have? What are the links to things that are nearby and in some facet direction, maybe nearby in terms of a geospatial partition, uh, you know, a quadrangle that's near next to you, or a um, or or by time, you know, going back and forwards in time, and this enables these agents to sort of move around in the data, and particularly algorithms to move around in the data. So in the picture, you can see there's a area of interest, and we can navigate that by looking at the different uh, partitions, and they, these are labeled by what's called a sequence number. It's kind of like a geohash, um, but it's it's just a enumeration of the quadrangles in a standard way. And that way you can sort of compute. You can compute from one sequence number to another, things that are nearby, and you can you can also uh, navigate by time partitions. Um, and this worked out really well. Um, uh, the one of the things you want to do, right, is produce models like weather maps, right? Like I want to take mm -hmm. the temperature that readings and I want to produce a sort of gradient surface there, color-coded of what, I, what the temperature is in all places. Um, so this is uh, actually something that I think the interesting part of computer science here, but you know, the Stanley Barnes you know, came up with this atmospheric interpolation model, and it was a, a discrete algorithm, and was a dynamical programming based, and it was able to be done in a very small amount of memory on an IBM mainframe in you know, 1964. So this is you know, great fodder for things that can now run easily in the browser. <laughs> um, because it's, uh, you know, we have a lot of computation power sitting right there. And, uh, and but what it, you can do is, is it basically, you can think about this as saying the interpolation process is, I have a region of interest, you know, I, from that I can retrieve the data, I can compute this sort of aver grid average of uh, the discrete values that, you know, the sparse 
readings that I have from the weather stations, wherever they are, and then I want to interpolate the whole, you know, set of, of atmospheric, temp say temperature, you know, for the whole grid. And so this is kind of like a MapReduce process. Um, so, you know, uh, part of the work that I did there was actually doing this in the browser. This is an example. Oh, wow. Um, we had this extreme weather event in, in North America uh, in January of 2014, where this is a polar vortex. It came, uh, this is very cold weather, came very far south in uh, the US. Uh, so this was uh, computed in real time in the browser, accessing these data partitions, um, using this sort of MapReduce process written in JavaScript, you know. And, uh, and it took about 22 seconds to generate this, this uh, interpolation grid. And over half of that was the data access, which is not a surprise. Um, so this is, you know, 2014 browsers, you know, they're probably a lot faster now if we were to do this today. Um, but the data access is, is what it is. And uh, um, so I think that's a, you know, that was an interesting result from my work there. But the sort of getting there, right, is the challenge. Like, and uh, so, you know, the, I think the interesting thing is, you know, dissertation regions are, are, are the kinds of things where at some point you stop and you write your dissertation. So I had to put this down. <laughs> Maybe I could have re-architected this in different ways and made it better and based on my knowledge, but I put it down and I moved on and I did some other work I think that's interesting. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the challenges here. And I think that, you know, this is the dev, you know, circa 2014, uh, the challenges here are, you know, I had to keep this whole system running. Um, you know, I, the polar vortex happened, you know, while I was working on my writing my dissertation and it just happened, you know, since I had a system running, I was able to capture that, that sort of event and then to produce that picture that I just showed. Um, but keeping it running was a challenge, right? Because here I have, you know, a bunch of VMs running a bunch of different things and, you know, collection, you know, I have this reliability problem where the servers on them, these APRS, IS, services that I'm connecting to, they changed. They, literally, the server names changed at different points in times, and things would go down, and you know, their, their end would go down, and my end would go down. And so I had this reliability problem, which was a challenge. And uh, uh, you know, I had to come up with you know, clever algorithms for retrying things, and then literally, I just had to check in on it every so often. I, you know, the simplest, you know, maybe crude method was, you know, I was dumping things to partition data files on disk. I would run out of disk space, you know, simple things like mm -hmm. that. I had the same challenges with my database. You know, I was running a MarkLogic database. I had infrastructure sizing there. Every so often I would run out of space. I, you know, I had a, a certain amount of infrastructure could only hold a certain amount of data. So I had to trim data from the database um, just because I wasn't, I'm not running a production system for, you know, the government I'm for my research. Um, and, uh, and same thing with ingest, you know, what, what do I ingest? Um, how well does that go? You know, if I need to reload my database, how long was that going to take? You know, the reliability of that service, what do I do when things go wrong? These are all things that, you know, imp, you know Kubernetes can address. Um, item potency is a system property, but it's a good thing to have, you know, where, you know, I can run the import twice and I'll get, and I won't get duplicates, you know, basically is a simple way to think about that. And that's a good thing because it makes, the data DevOps easier. Um, so those were a lot of the challenges I faced. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, kind of looking at a slightly different system here. Um, this was a NASA a challenge project and uh, they have this uh, OpenNAX as a climate model and uh, it's stored in this HDF5 format and these massive files that are sort of a, like it's used for like satellite images and, and so forth. So there's a, 
library that you can get, a C library that, that can process these. And so it's, it's this kind of funky, often a corner data format that's used a lot, but you know, you have to have special software to process it. And so the challenge here I thought was, well, we want to put this on the web. We want to make it accessible. And uh, so at the time I was uh, teaching um, data engineering uh, course at uh, Berkeley and I thought, this is a great example of on-demand, Amazon, you know, EMR, Hadoop, you know, basically to do this kind of data processing. And again, you can use this as infrastructure. Uh, you can, and so the, the big picture on the, on the right is basically processing these HF5 um, formats into, from S3 and via map tasks into data partitions, restoring them back into S3. And then, you know, taking, so getting the data out of this funky format, doing some averaging, doing some stuff, producing these partitions, and then making a web application that can read these partitions in different ways. Here, it's all, very, it's all static. The model doesn't change. There's no new sensors, but it is geospatial data. Um, and, you know, we, 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 for the what we did, you know, here we got a little award from NASA, which was great. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I think the, the, the interesting part here is, um, is again, it's a you know we go from handcrafted scripts to you know Hadoop as infrastructure, um, and you know it worked out reasonably well. But you know it's it's uh, I think the we can do more, um, and so that's where we get to. So the evolution, you know, now that we have Kubernetes, that that was still 2014. Um, what would we do differently, right? So I was feel like I've been on this collision course with Kubernetes and in various ways, you know, I've been building distributed computation systems and various for math and other things like that over the years. And so here I am doing this data collection and ingest and analysis work and in various forms. And this is, you know, uh, we, you know, the, the three different parts of this have characteristics that I think that, uh, you know, if you're doing collection, you, you want to have this reliability of the data source and you have long running jobs and you need to deal with outages. And one of the things about sensor networks is it's ephemeral data. Once the data is transmitted, if there's nobody to receive it, it go, it's done, it's gone, right? So, uh, so downtime means gaps in coverage. And uh, especially for things like CWAP, you know, it's a, it's a real time network. It's meant to sort of move that data fast and uh, it really is gone, right? If nobody's receiving it. Uh, ingest is kind of a similar thing where you have, you know, have this, this challenge of going from raw formats to some kind of cleaned observations. Um, some systems just want, you know, basic syntactic validation. Others like, you know, the National Weather Service is interested in. So you measure temperature in your home measure, uh, weather system. There's a model for, you know, whether that's a valid observation, right? The, the air temperature can only increase a certain amount in a certain amount of time and things like that. And they run these models to check that is semantically, is that a good, good reading? And they, you know, they, there, there's some issues about the question of like near real time, like how fast do they want to get these things? Um, and then analysis is, again, is the same kind of challenge of like you have batch and ad hoc and real time analysis issues here. So we want to take that data and ingest it in different ways. Uh, and then we have the applications also of the computational models, like you know the inter interpolation that I was doing in the browser. That's fun to do real time, but you know if you're doing that as a say a weather service, you're probably going to run a model, you know, and generate a set of predictions uh, that's going to be reused. You know, so that's a more of like a batch 
uh, type of this is fascinating. Um, yeah. So I think on the data collection side, I mean, I think this is not controversial. It's not, you know, not amazingly, you know, like a, 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 not a grand revelation here that, that there's a clear win for in Kubernetes. Right? We have long running processes for data collection. Right? We can paralyze them with Kubernetes. We can deal with restarting after failures. Um, I think the operator paradigm gives us a great path for evolution here. So you go from basically scripts and programs running in a VM with all the typical upkeep problems to pods that are collecting data that can be scaled out where we can store the configuration and the authentication you know, credentials and so forth and secrets. We can manage all that complexity with the, the, with the principle of the sort of fundamental building blocks in, in Kubernetes. So I think that's a, a clear win from a collection standpoint. Um, you know, just that, that man, just the complexity of just the configuration parameters and things would, you know, just to begin with, not even talking about scale out. Um, but like in the case of uh, CWAP, you know, I had to, I think there was like five different servers I had to connect to. So basically I had to, I had to run diff, five different collection, you know, pod based processes, right? So that's five different pods on Kubernetes that I have to run and keep running. Uh, so, so I think that that kind of thing of being able to say, I have one of these things, slightly different, slightly different connection parameters, but it's the same kind of thing. And they have a, now we have a language for saying that, we have, we can, where you can describe that job or that pod, um, that deployment, you know, in a very in a common way, and then parameterize it. So that's great. Um, and, and we still have this challenge of like the raw data. I mean, sensor networks again. You have this. You're, you're collecting ephemeral data. And I think the guiding principle here is, from a data science standpoint, is you want to capture as much of that raw data as possible, right? Because you, you, any interpretation that you, that you apply is an interpretation, and maybe you're wrong. Maybe your algorithm was wrong. So you really just want to take the raw data and, and, and put it somewhere. And so in the old world, I was, you know, was basically uh, running these scripts and I was storing them in files, and maybe I could have done better and stored them in object storage. Um, and I think the collection, collecting pods, you know, they're doing a very similar task. Um, and uh, the only difference is, you know, we're probably not using local storage, we are using object storage. You know, we're gonna, and, uh, you know, and we're gonna have a better reliability, uh, but it's kind of the same model of, you know, we're collecting data from the source and we're pushing it somewhere as fast as we can, as reliably as we can. This is not real time, right? This is this is just you know capturing what is what is out there, um, but you know we can sort of we can think about what it means to go real time, and, and I think this is where you want to still want to have you still need all right to record you know for reprocessing the the data that you're receiving. So you still need to push it to object storage, but you can think about a streaming queue where you push data on there. You're probably still partitioning it. Uh, you're not going to put in an individual observation because they're so tiny, but you're probably going to chunk them in small periods of time, and then you're going to have some kind of a of a queue and and then kind of a reader for that queue. It's it's a great thing to be able to reuse that ingestion pod because the process, the data is probably the same. You know, how it gets its data may be slightly different. Um, and I think the thing to realize about um, geospatial data in this context is it is like real time. It's not still not really real time. And you know we're not taking each observation and processing as we receive it as fast as possible. 
maybe we don't need that. And, uh, and unlikely we don't need that. You know, if it's air quality, you know, a 10 minute window, you know, is, is more than sufficient. And, you know, if it's air, it's air temperature, again, you may be looking at this as like uh, the current air temperature, you know, as being reported to, you know, some consumer. So again, you may want to run processes that, um, that average that over a certain time period. So you're looking at a time, a partition of time for the use case, and then how can I serve that data within that partition of time? So it, you know, I think it's a little different. It depends on your use case and whether you really need real time, because that's a hard thing to do. Um, so I have a demo. Um, and uh, Purple Air uh, is a, uh, a provider of uh, sensors. So you can buy these things and you can put them in your yard and a lot of people do. Um, turns out, I didn't know that, but, uh, but now it's been incredibly oh, yeah. useful uh, because a lot of people, they've checked Purple Air's website. And I discovered that, um, in fact, they, uh, um, they have an API and they're very kindly produced you know, through the API as long as you don't overdo it. They, they will, you can take that data and you can get a bunch of air quality readings for wherever they collect it from. Um, so I uh, built a little example of this thing where I'm basically collecting air quality. I started this about uh, on the 25th of uh, August. And uh, so the architecture is real simple. I have um, a single resilient uh, uh, collector that's, uh, that's running as a running, running, talking to Purple Air and, and, and trying to be nice to their API and collecting the data on a, on a five minute partition. And, uh, and then basically storing it in 30 minute chunks into object storage. I have an ingestion process that, that, can, that can take that, uh, that data from object storage and push it into Redis. Um, and Redis is, you know, from a perspective of the application, it's just Redis, it's OSS Redis. Um, but I'm actually using an operator, to uh, the Redis enterprise operator to, to deploy a cluster. So that Redis database, that surface is running in a cluster. Um, so I'm using operator to manage that. And then I have a single, um, like a simple Flask-based application that can do interpolation, uh, which is also running inside the cluster. So this is all based on GitHub. So the, the infrastructure here, and the nice thing about this is, you know, again, like that configuration management has just been so nice. Um, uh, so that, that's the thing. And um, uh, I'm gonna show this here in a moment. Uh, but the, so I collected data from the greater Bay Area and uh, I didn't want to collect a huge, massive amount. So I've only been to a big quadrangle yep. area, you know, it covers most of the sort of greater area here. Um, I've been collecting since the 25th and I discovered, that's about the time that I discovered that there was an API. Uh, so, um, and uh, the way it's stored in, G you know, there's a standard OSS Redis feature uh, for geospatial data sets. And I think it's interesting that basically I have a uh, key partition in the Redis, and uh, the way this works is that uh, the key value has a sensor and an offset into the partition. So, you know, oh, 10 wow. minutes in, 12 minutes in for this particular sensor ID, uh, and then the set of observations. And the way that the, the that works in Redis is basically it's kind of a reverse model. The key is the value, and the score for in the in the set is the geoposition. Uh, and so uh, that gives me the add potency, which which I desire. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I have a simple interpolation model. It's not a air quality model. You know, it's not something that a, uh, 
the EPA or somebody would use. You know, there's a lot more that goes into that. Did a little research on that, and then I realized that's that's a lot of work. Um, so it's just simple interpolation. Um, so let me let me pull that up here. I'm going to stop sharing this, and I'm going to go to. Um, demo. Yes. So let's share that. All right. And I assume you guys can see all this. Um, so, um, so we're looking at a particular uh, um, uh, interpolation here and it's what you see in the top here is just the data that I've loaded and and uh, um, the I can select different partitions here so I can go back and this is today actually so this is what the air quality looks like uh, I can change that you know earlier today and roughly right now it's gotten better right the, the, some Ron San Mateo what have you um, so uh, and we can we can so this is hitting the, the loaded data that's in Redis, and we can sequence this. So this will show you, I have a, actually, so if you pick the 9th of September, that's the day that San Francisco turned orange and the sun didn't come out. Um, and uh, so we can run that. And this is, again is a, an example of, of just, this is real time pulling from the database, running the interpolation, uh, and then serving the interpolation. So interpolation is being done in the flask app, not in the, in the, uh, none in the browser. The browser is just creating the, the visualization. And so the, you know, this is, you know, this is a Kubernetes, you know, this is, this, you know, this is not really necessarily Kubernetes, but the whole infrastructure is running there, which is nice. And, you know, I, I, this was actually really straightforward to do. Um, I think the combination of, uh, uh, of being able to sort of slice and dice this in various ways and be able to describe that in uh, Kubernetes terms let me let me do this very fast, and then you know this this will continue going, and I can change the size of things and make it make it less uh, eight bit looking. But uh, you can see it gets pretty bad at different points in time. Yeah, um, there there's. I have a just a, a quick non Kubernetes question, but for the yeah. data collection out in the ocean, how does that work? Because I imagine there's not people out there. Right, so so this is the thing about having having a just a um, an interpolation that's just based on math. You know, this is not an air quality model that uh, is taking into account that you know wind and geography. Right, so you would probably have a, a model that would uh, discount. You know, um, although you know the smoke is going out into the ocean, but there's there's probably different ways in which that is. Uh, is dealt with in terms of, of uh, how smoke dissipates or particles dissipate in marine air versus over land and all those kinds of things. Um, this is, doesn't do that. This is just a mathematical algorithm that says, I have a grid, I have these values, I can in interpolate them in different ways and using a various forms of linear inter interpolation. Um, so that's why I say this is not an air quality model. It gives you, it does give you a rough approximation, you know, uh, but I think you have to discount some things where like a, uh, like over water, for example. But there are actually, you know, a place like the Bay Area, there's a lot of, of these sensors. So it's probably more um, accurate in places where there's a lot of sensors versus places where there's less. Um, but anyway, 
Wow. So there's, you know, take this off, take the picture you're seeing with the grain of salt. It's not, I'm not, uh, I'm not the EPA. Yeah. <laughs> or the National Weather Service. Uh, but it still is, it's fascinating how you were able to do that. And I, the first question that comes to my mind is how much of this that you've done now on this new architecture with Kubernetes do you feel is because Kubernetes makes it easier or, and how much is it just because you've already done it once and you feel like, all right, I know how to do this. So I have the heavy lifting is done. Yeah. I mean, I think I have one more slide. I think that can address some of that. Um, okay. Uh, but uh, so let me go back to the slides here. Um, I, I think it's that, that you got the slides. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Yeah. All right. So uh, go back to presentation. I think the, um, I mean, the, the thing about it is, um, in the last couple of days, as I, you know, basically preparing for this talk, um, I have been tearing down and, and standing up the infrastructure in various ways. You know, uh -huh. I have the collection job running and it's just doing its job and it has been running relatively flawlessly for a while, which is great. I don't have to worry about that. But now I have this challenge of like, oh, I'm playing with different things and, you know, looking at different characteristics of how, you know, how can I speed up my calculation? You know, uh, let's, let's make sure I have the right data in there. I tore down my Redis database and put it back up, you know, and different things. So the, what I eventually did was this thing I'm showing you here where I wrote a little Python uh, program that takes a templatized uh, Kubernetes job and, lets me adjust the parameters, right? So I go in there, it, I can tell it, you know, the time periods that I'm interested in, and I can uh, configure the, the data source and the target, and, and I can, how, you know, like there's a six or seven um, particle measurements, which particle measurement am I gonna use? You know, so here I'm using the 10 minute, index one is the 10 minute um, measurement. And, uh, and so that job, I can, I can basically create a fresh database, configure the secret for the uh, database access, and then just run these ingest jobs by generating them um, you know, via this little program and applying them and so forth. So I can basically populate a new database really quickly. And the, you know, the, the sort of most raw speed I've been able to achieve, I can load a, data, a day of data in like 70 to 100 seconds. So... Um, you know, I've been able to sort of stand up and tear down and stand up and tear down infrastructure. I think that's a huge difference uh, for me from the past where, you know, I, that was a, a monumental task, right? Because it was just wasn't that easy to, to describe, you know, I don't, I don't have the, the building blocks. Um, and I think this is where you can imagine um, that within certain parameters for certain kinds of data, at least that an operator um, could be really useful, right? Because then you can say, you can say instead of saying it in these terms with these the sort of Python program that sort of knows something about the structure of my job, you could you can say it in terms of what the outcome that you want. I would like to have you know uh, this many days of data in this database, and sort of say it by name, and and then the configuration of the operator and, and the other things in the custom resources knows how to get the data and where to put it, and the credentials are there somewhere, and you, the user of the data, 
I've just described what you want. And that also plays well into organizations where they want to separate concerns from the consumers of the data and the users of the data in terms of who has the credentials to do it versus who has the ability to say what they want, right? And that's an RBAC can be used in, in, in there as well. And there's all kinds of potential for, for being able to uh, deal with the governance of data, which is this is where I come back, come back to that. That first thing. slide. Yeah, the first slide. About the governance of data is a huge deal. So this is, it's not just that, it's not just organizations that have to deal with GDPR, they have to deal with governance of data. It's also about like, you know, privacy concerns and infrastructure concerns, you know, this all costs money, right, to run this infrastructure. So maybe your organization that says, it's great that you want to do these model building tasks, but we want to make sure that we do this in a cost efficient way, um, or that you're not just asking for, you know, uh, uh, ridiculous amounts of data, which ends up scaling our cluster to ridiculous sizes and ends up costing us lots of money. There's a way to manage that over time. And, uh, and uh, this is, you know, what people have done with centralized Hadoop infrastructure. Um, this was at you know, in Orange. We had a massive, you know, sort of internal Hadoop cluster with queues and permissions and different things you could do. And that's how they sort of managed access to compute. And I think you have the same kind of challenges on Kubernetes that could be solved in various ways, um, uh, in useful ways as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's, that's my last slide. <laughs> so. That's awesome. I really appreciate you going through that with us and showing us the evolution of the air quality that you've built in, in 2014 and then how you've managed to recreate it here. And it's a, uh, like you said, it's a perfect time for you to create that and let us see. I mean, the pictures of this, uh, the Bay Area are incredible. We've all seen pictures on our phones from friends or those of you that are out there that you know better than anybody, but seeing it also in this map and watching it change over time is, is really a great just visual uh, idea of what's happening. So let's, let's jump back into a few questions that I have on the, like the role of databases. And I know you're using Redis were, do you feel like there should be more and, um, databases that should be thrown in and then the storage aspect you talked about how in the beginning of the when you were working on this in 2014 you were just using up all of this storage I imagine now you didn't have that problem uh, because you weren't just using up all of the disk so can you talk to that a little bit sure I mean the so the challenge I think one of the challenges for um, this kind of work is yeah, and I, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to talk to the proprietor data. I haven't done that yet. For example, just in terms of like, you'll have this sensor network and it's producing all this data continuously. You know, how much do you keep, right? And uh, for what purposes? And so there's a historical aspect to that. Um, but there's also a question of like the cold, cold, cold and colder storage, right? You can keep pushing that sort of archive to colder and storage, and that's great. Um, but which your live data, you know, is for some purpose, right? So it's either, uh, you know, the current reporting or uh, for, to support um, model training, you know, for predictions for the future or to support, you know, say climate research for a certain period of time. And so that 
partition of time that you need and that geospatial region that you're interested in is very particular to the work that you're doing. And that ability to sort of slice off the raw data, put it somewhere, you know, in, in a usable form, that's the, the challenge I think for databases is this question of like, you know, I need a stand up infrastructure, uh, you know, that, that can support the, the, the creation of this database and with the properties that I want. And then I need to ingest that data in, in, a, in a reasonable amount of time so that I can then do some work. And I think there are different use cases there where, you know, the real-time monitoring is one thing, but the researcher who's, or model builder, or, you know, person who has some tasks to do, they have this requirement of saying, I need this piece of data, I need it to be, to have these um, query capabilities, I need to shove it into that database, you know, and the faster it gets there, you know, the happier I am. Um, and then there's the balancing out of that of in terms of like, um, how much does that cost, right? And uh, you know, uh, am I am I cost conscious or not? Mm-hmm. Is a is a big question, um, because you could also, um, you know, there are things you can do, um, more like the way, um, say Hadoop works, where there's just data files, and uh, you're processing those data files over time to produce some interpolation or something like that, or train some model. And then, you, then you're accessing your data maybe many times uh, versus being able to query it. Um, the, there's challenges in all these things. You know, the databases make the world simpler because, in the case of um, uh, in the case of this particular data set, you know, I put it into a geospatial index, which means that you know I query it based on geospatial properties. So I don't have to think too hard about in in the ingest process. It's just put it in the database. And then the consumption process, it's like, I'm going to make the geospatial query that I want, right? So I can choose the, the size of the geospatial partition based on that query. And then, the, and, and then those things are separable and the concerns are separate. In a, um, in a batch processing model where you don't have a database, then you have, you have to think about those things. So hard, those are hard concerns. Um, and they're inter, inter, interwoven in how your processing code works. So I think that's the... the that one of the challenges I think for database vendors is making that, um, and this is where operators I think are really important for databases, is making that ability to say, okay, I want a database, it needs to have this kind of size characteristic and these kind of performance characteristics and, and, and the credentials are now generated for me or, or available to me somehow. And now I can use those to ingest my data and do my processing and maybe when I'm done, I, I, I'm done with that database and, I, and it goes away or maybe it's there for some long period of time or longer period of time. And that kind of ad hoc versus uh, uh, temporal infrastructure, I think is, is, is also another interesting aspect of, of where databases need to go. This idea of a long-lived database is great, but it's also like, I might just stand that up for, you know, ad hoc purposes, purposes where ad hoc might be days, but it's not, you know, it's not forever. <laughs> It makes me think about like Mission Impossible and this will self-destruct after five days or 10 days, however many you give it a lifespan and you say after these two weeks, I don't need it anymore. So just go ahead and let it blow up. So the, the other question that I had on this, speaking of challenges, like let's dive in a bit and the challenges, you mentioned it a little when you were talking in the slides, but the challenges for these sensor networks and 
how do you address these challenges within the Kubernetes environment? Um, well, I think the, the, you know, the, the, one of the main challenges is, um, well, one of the two main challenges, one of which is just the ephemeral nature of sensor data. So uh, if your infrastructure goes down, um, you know, if your collection infrastructure goes down, you're, you're just going to have a gap in your data. And, uh, and that can be true, you know, on the other side of the fence, whatever aggregation system you have, it's the same, same story. If the APRS system goes down, you don't have citizen weather data. If purple arrows data, you know, collection system goes down, we don't have purple error data. So that's, you know, that, that across the board, that, that kind of reliability of the collection process is, uh, is a challenge. And, um, you know, the, it's one thing like, like you know, I have gaps, you know, the way I'm collecting my data is fine for now because it, it restarts things and restarts quickly, but I do, there are gaps in there because when things fail and I've run into some data, data issues from the API and, and I've run into code issues in my own thing, and, you know, there, there's a bug and the thing fails and then it starts up again. And I'm like, well, what, I have to sort that thing out. And, and, uh, and I lost some small segment of data there. It's just gone. And, uh, Fortunately, you know, I'm collecting things on a 30 minute time period, so that's not a big deal, but it might be for other things. And that's so what that aspect of like just a pod restart doesn't really quite cut it. And uh, um, so if you want to build, if it really is sort of mission critical to always collect this data, you need a, another form of resiliency. You need some checks and balances there. Um, you know, maybe you need to collect the same data in, in mul uh, from multiple collectors uh, hope, and hope not everyone has the same problem um, and, and you need a way to understand the what was happening at the time and, and see if you can recover from it so so in the case of uh, of uh, you know of pod restarts you might have you know overlapping data and you now know that you need to sort of merge something somewhere um, and you want to record that event. And that's where I, I say that like, I can think an operator for collection and ingest and things like that could be very interesting because um, it would be, have a higher level of view than just pod restarts, right? Like it's great that you restarted the pod, but then what do we do differently mm -hmm. with the data because of that? Or even just to record the fact that there was an outage and it was this long, you know, and uh, so that people know that there's a gap in the data and we shouldn't rely on that. Oh, yeah, that's a great insight. That's super useful right if you're looking at it and you don't have to go back through and say what's happening here why am i not getting this one of one of the metadata um things that when you go and get data sets you can go data.gov and get data sets that are published for various things and one of the things you get for geospatial data especially is what i what you think of as an extent like what region of the world does this cover and what time period and other facets right so so computing extent of data, you know, is a, is an important um, aspect of what your what your what your process is doing when you're collecting the data. So time, you know, time downtime is you know uh, changes the extent of the time period, right? And there's gaps in there. And then the same thing goes for like maybe, you know, if you're collecting data from different servers that serve different parts of the world, then you you might you might have geospatial outages for time periods. You know, so you have to think harder about how that data is, how that's recorded. And, and the challenge there is, um, you know, those can be hard problems to solve um, from a, you know, sort of computer science standpoint, you know, like what is the right algorithm uh, 
that has the right kind of, of recovery and failure and metadata reporting is, is, not, is not necessarily an easy thing. And so, you know, things that can reduce that burden, you know, whether they're libraries or operators or whatever, are really going to be good things for this kind of a work. And I think that's where, you know, if you're going to follow the sort of uh, Kubernetes mindset, I think this is again where, uh, I keep going back to operator, but again, I think that's kind of idea of like taking it up a level and letting those hard problems be solved once, uh, mm -hmm. maybe, uh, if it's possible. And, you know, and then at least you have, or at least maybe give people building blocks that are more reliable, that they don't have to try and solve all those hard problems over and over again. Um, would be an interesting evolution from sort of data DevOps. Incredible to talk with you, Alex. I really appreciate you showing us what you've been doing and taking the time to give us this presentation and really enlighten me on all that you've been able to do. And I think it is a super interesting point of view that you're coming from and you're opening our minds, showing us some things that could be better, showing us some things that you definitely advanced on over the years. I really uh, can't thank you enough for coming, talking to us. I want to let everyone else know that is here. If you want to continue talking to Alex, what's the best way to continue the conversation? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Slack for, for the community, right? So we can start there. That's always good. <laughs> there we go. Good answer. I'm always open to conversations. It's, uh, I think, uh, you know, people's particular problems are always fascinating to me. I like talking to people about their, their challenges and, and sharing knowledge. So that's, that's it. Yeah, it's obvious you have a lot of knowledge to share. So I really appreciate you coming here, taking the time, talking with us. I oh, will, yeah, I will finish with that. We'll leave it. Uh, we'll be back here next week. Same time, same place. See you all. Thanks for staying with us.